0: Very nice. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen was Salatu Asalam ala Abdillahi wa Rasulih, Nabina Muhammad wa ala Alihi wa Sahbihi Ajma'in Amma So, first of all, I would like to begin by praising Allah and I would like to begin by asking Allah to exalt the mention and grant peace. To our Messenger Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and to his family and his companions. I would also like to extend my thanks and gratitude to all of the organizers, the administration of the masjid who facilitated this event to take place in such a beautiful masjid. We ask Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala to place it heavy on the scale of their good deeds Yom al qiyamah and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make this masjid a place which is blessed, a place where Allah's tranquility descends and the angels surround it and mercy covers the people within it and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions them in a gathering that is better than the gathering that they are in Our topic today is a really beautiful topic. We're going to be talking about it's difficult to maybe even find a, the right summary for it but we're going to be talking about al madahibul fiqhiyah. The madahib the madhab as it relates to fiqh. Now it's very important that we call this al madahibul fiqhiyah because what we're not here to talk to about today is al madahib Al-Aqadiyyah the different ways and the different means and the different beliefs that people have as it relates to Aqeedah and Iman that's not our discussion today at all today we came to talk about al furu al fiqhiyah the branches of the religion as it relates to Fiqh and we came to talk about a number of things we want to talk about tarikh al-madhhab, where did the madhab come in history or what we might call tatawr al madahib how the madhab developed over history. Some of the scholars call it tarikh al the history of Islamic legislation and law and where that Islamic legislation and law came from. We also want to talk about how a person learns a madhab. And in this, you must forgive me because uh, I'm, I'm a mix here, right here. I'm a, I'm a strange mix. When I started studying Islam, I started studying it upon the madhab of Imam Ahmad. Not really out of choice. Uh, Although it's an excellent <coughs> madhab to study. But just because that was what was available for my teachers. So we took akhsar, uh, you know, al-muqtasarat and these books in the madhab of Imam Ahmed. Zaad al in these books. Then I started teaching in al-madrasatul so We went on the madhab of Imam al-Shafi'i. So all that I'm going to gather for you for the madhab al-imam al-shafi, I took it from Sheikh Abdul Rahman. So not that I'm blaming Sheikh if I say something wrong, it's my fault. But I took it from him uh, because he grew up in the madhab, studying the madhab and memorizing the books of the madhab and teaching the madhab. So from him I took some discussion about al-madhab al-shafi. As for the Hanafi Madhab, which I think is important for us to talk about because it's very popular here in South Africa. I went to research some of the books and the way people study the Madhab, I researched it for myself, so I'm not going to say to you I'm not uh, an authority on the Madhab, but we took some of the most famous books that are studied in the Madhab, just to present to you how a person studies. because as we're going to talk about later on today, insha'Allah ta'ala. This is very important, wallahi. ikhwan. This is something that I'm going to give you as a principle. If you, if you want just to kind of say, okay, today I'm a bit tired, I'm going to switch off. I'm going to really give you basically two things. If you take these two things as general principles, you everything I'm going to say is going to fall under these two things. The first, الحكم على الشيء فرعٌ عن تصوره. You can't issue a ruling for something until you understand what the thing you are issuing a ruling for is. For so many people, I see them arguing about Al Madahib al-fiqhiyya, and the person has تصورٌ a تصور which is false خاطئ. Or even we can say, tasawwurun batil, a completely false understanding of what the madhab is. So someone comes and says, haram, haram alaik, haram. You cannot take a madhab. The other one comes and says, fardu'ayn upon you. Like they said to me when I first became Muslim, they said, ya akhina, shukku fi imanik. We doubt your iman. I said, why, what did I do? They said, which madhab are you? The problem all of this discussion is fi tassawur They don't have an understanding of what the madhab fiqhi is at all. So this one is arguing about something. His understanding of the madhab is completely wrong. And he has no tasawwur of what a madhab fiqhi is. And the other one also has no proper tasawar of what the madhab fiqhi is. And that's why sometimes you might find, and we talk about this later, you might find that a person argues with you over something which really is, and we're gonna cover this, this is a nice mas'ala later on. Can an ordinary person, or I'm not gonna say can, it's wrong. I'm gonna say to what extent can an ordinary person, a non-learned person follow a madhab? Of course, Tisab, we agree. I mean, anyone can say, Muhammad Tim Al-Hanafi. Muhammad Tim Al-Maliki, Muhammad Tim Al-Shafi'i, Muhammad Tim Al-Hanbali. And intisab, yes. But where might the the layman actually struggle? As an example, someone comes and says, I am Abdullah Al-Shafi'i. Hayyaka Ya Abdullah. It's lovely to meet you. Ya Abdullah, could you tell me one book that you have taken in the Shafi'i Madhab. At least, at least, at least you took one book, right? At least you have one single source, Matn Abi Shujaa. at least you have one single source of the Madhab. What do you mean? For the point is that a lot of people argue about things in this issue because basically they don't understand at all what the Madhab is. Or how to use it, or how to benefit from it, or they don't understand uh, some of the masail within it, so they might confuse, for example, the issues of taqlid with the issue of, for example, intisab, attributing yourself to the madhab, or they might confuse taqleed, which is in, in reality a darura for many people, a necessity for many people, versus what some people call a taqlid al a'ma any absolute blind following to the point the person says don't tell me the hadith and they might confuse this issue i'm not talking about what well, the ruling we haven't covered the huqam yet we're just talking about the the person is shouting at someone "Wallah haram عليك. you are muqallid. this is evil it didn't come in the quran it didn't come in the sunnah and they're fighting about it and the person, Aslan, doesn't differentiate between the types of taqlid. He didn't understand what taqlid is. He doesn't understand what ijtihad is. He doesn't understand the marahil, the stages a person goes through in their understanding of fiqh. So they're arguing about something asalat and they don't understand it. So the first qa'id that we're going to take is, Al-Hukmu Far'un and until you understand what we're talking about, you won't be able to judge what is allowed and what is not allowed. The second principle, and I'm going to make three, not, not two. The second <coughs> principle that we're going to take is the principle that is mentioned in the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal: We made you into a middle ummah. A lot of people, when they heard Muhammad Tim al-hanbali is gonna come here to our half Hanafi half Shafi'i town and he's gonna tell us that you have to be la madhabiya you're not allowed to have a madhab and he's gonna take you away from what your fathers used to worship and he's gonna change the deen that you were taught and on the other side I need mean, the other side, and there is a other side, also messages going out. This Muhammad Tim, I heard him praise Abu Yusuf al Qadi. I heard him say something good about Abu Yusuf al Qadi, Sahib Abi Hanifa. Rahimahumullah Ta'ala. I don't think this brother is upon the sunnah. So we see what? Ifratun wa tafrit. Exaggeration and extremism on both sides. وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً wasata. Allah gave us the Kitab and the Sunnah for us to be neither extreme on one side nor on the other. That doesn't mean in every Mas'ala you go in the middle. Should a woman wear Niqab or not? Halfway. <laughs> it's not like that, right? But that's a misunderstanding, right? Mafhumun khati. It's a misunderstanding that the meaning of Wasatiyah is in the middle of everything. It's not in the middle of everything. But what it means is to be just and to be fair and not to be extreme. Because the thing that destroyed the people who came before you is al ghulu fi being extreme in the religion. And also in this, sometimes when people make statements, you also have to contextualize the statements they make. You have to put the statement in context of where it came from. Some people live in a situation where a particular madhab fiqhi is associated with a particular madhab aqadi. Yani the, a particular madhhab in fiqh, شافعية, in this city, all of them are dot 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 dot, dot on this aqeedah, of this aqeedah. So people then confuse the two and they start to talk about the fiqhi madhhab, the madhab in fiqh, as though it's a madhhab in aqeedah. Oh, those people, they are you, those Shafi'iyah. and Mudillun. They misguide themselves, they misguide other people. Akhi, you're talking about Aqeedah. You mixed Al-Madhab Al-Aqadi wa Al-Madhab al fiqhi You start talking about someone's belief. It doesn't go with you. You didn't talk about the issue of Fiqh. So we must be just and fair. Just and fair and this brings me to my third point i was going to include in the second one but i'm going to make it a clear third point that our goal bil ijma muhammad tim says what bil ijma ijma consensus that the goal of a muslim is to attach themselves to the book of allah and the sunnah of the messenger sallallahu wasallam and the aqwal of the to al arba'ah the four imams on this topic is so much it is mutawatir from them it has been narrated from them from so many different people in so many different books in so many different places that the goal of the muslim is to attach their heart to the quran and the sunnah now this doesn't mean i'm having a go at the it doesn't have to be a fiqhi in anything that takes you detaches you from the kitab and the sunnah, this is a problem. We are here to attach our hearts to the Quran and the sunnah. Allah Azza wa didn't send down the Maliki Madhab with Jibreel. He didn't. I'm gonna vary the, the, the Madhab here so I didn't say you kept saying Hanafi <laughs> Shafi'i. He didn't send the Maliki Madhab with Jibreel. He didn't. Allah Azza wa sent down the book of Allah and the Sunnah. The Prophet ﷺ said, Taraktu shayain." I left among you two things. You will not be misguided. Lan ba'di. You will not be misguided after me as long as you hold on to them. Kitab Allahi wa Sunnati, The book of Allah and the Sunnah. And I think everyone knows. But the madhahib fiqhiyya by name are not mentioned in the Qur'an, nor are they mentioned in the sunnah. <coughs> Sometimes you find funny things like statements about Umar ibn al-Khattab. And in the footnotes it says, perhaps he took the view of Imam al-Shafi'i. <laughs> ya <Yeah>, salam. <laughs> How did Umar take the view of Imam al-Shafi'i? <laughs> Sometimes you find things like this. They don't mean he took it from Shafi'i, but you know they mean he took the same you know, istidlal, the same idea he took. But it's funny. You see, you know, عُمَرْ Perhaps Umar أَخَذَ بِرَأْيَ Shafi'i Took the opinion of Imam Shafi'i. This is somewhat impossible. The earliest of the four Imams Died 150 after the Hijrah, right? Rahimahullah <laughs> Taala. Up to what is it? 250 together. So 150 to 250 years after the Hijrah, there was no Umar never met. La wa La Hanifa, ولا مالك ولا الشافعي ولا أحمد. Taala. So the point is, if we understand this issue nicely, we have a good tasawwur and we are balanced in the sense we're just in the rulings of Islam, respectful to the scholars of Islam, but we stick. We're not shy to say that Allah Azza wa Jal sent down the Quran and the Sunnah. He didn't send down the Madahib al arbaah He sent down the Quran and the Sunnah. Add to that that Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali Sunnati بِالسُنَّةِ وَالسُنَّةِ الْخُلَفَاءَ الرَّاشِدِينَ Stick to my sunnah, the sunnah of the Khulafa Al-Rashideen. Those Khulafa Al-Rashideen didn't know any madhab of Abi Hanifa, ولا Malik, ولا Shafi'i, ولا Ahmed. So the point is here, we're going to be just. We're not going to take away from our ulama. We're not going to detract from them or to speak badly about them or to detract from the khidmah that they did for the ummah. And honestly, I believe when you finish studying the Madahib Fiqhiya, you're going to say, ما أعظم هذه What an amazing service these people did for the ummah. They did an amazing service to the ummah. We're not going to take away from that. But we're not going to be shy in attaching people's hearts to the Qur'an and the sunnah. As did who? Who did we take this from? Did we invent this ourselves? We took it from Imam Abu ta'ala, Imam Malik Al-Shafi' and Ahmad. All of them kept saying, to go to the Kitab and the Sunnah, we're going to bring some of the statements that they said with regard to attaching your heart to the Quran and the Sunnah. So this is important. So a person now, in summary, who studies a madhab fiqhi, and they do so while attaching their heart to the Quran and the Sunnah, then this person insha'Allah ta'ala has done, I don't even say they haven't done wrong, they've done well. He's done a good job to study the Madahib fiqhiyya, muratabah, bid in uh, in order, in stages, by taking the different topics of, within the, the, the wider topic of fiqh, like fiqh, usul al-fiqh, al-qawaid al-fiqhiyya, Al Furuq al fiqhiyah Al-Khilafiyat, all of these different topics we're going to talk about in fiqh, he takes them and he takes them from a curriculum that is Murattabah, it's ordered, and it is is Bit-Tadarruj. It starts him off easy, then a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. He's done great. But his heart is attached to what? What does he crave for? What does he hope for? What is he dreaming of at night? He's attached to his heart to the Quran and the Sunnah. He wants to obey Allah and obey the Messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Ya amanu, wa rasula wa From the best of what he said about the word ulul amr is al-ulama wal umara They are the scholars and they are the leaders. Allah told us absolute obedience to Allah. Absolute obedience to the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa As for the ulama and the umara, the leaders and the scholars The obedience to them is In the light of your obedience to Allah and to his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa This is just a khulasa, like a little something just to get you started So that the one who wants to run away, they can run And the one who wants to stay, they can stay But inshallah, I mean, this is the the مختصر of what i want to share with you today Khwani. let's talk very very briefly and the problem is just my introduction to fiqh is is like 24 hours long no that's really it was 26 24 26 hours something like that so i'm gonna have to be like very you know very summarized the word fiqh because we have to start with the tasawwar right we said before we understand the madhab, we have to have a tasawwar of what the madhab is. Somebody tell me what's a madhab. First of all, the madahib we're talking about are not to do with aqeedah, it's fiqh. So let's talk about fiqh. The first word or the first meaning of the word fiqh, it is al-fahmul-daqeeq. It is to have detailed understanding. I, I don't like to say that it's, the, it's just to have understanding. I mean, some people say al-fiqh wa al fahm That's true, but in Arabic, the words are different, right? We need to have something a bit more. I mean, what, what makes the difference between understanding and fiqh? Why don't we call it the madahib of understanding? Why do we say fiqh? Because fiqh is about deep understanding. Ibn Faris, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, he said uh, he said first of all he said these three letters they are a single root which tells you about understanding something and having knowledge of it he said he said then the, it became used specifically for the Sharia. It became used specifically for the Sharia. Ibn Qayyim, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, أَخَصُّ مِنَ الْفَهْمِ وَهُوَ فَهْمُ Fiqh is more specific than understanding. It means knowing what the person who is speaking, knowing what they want. Others said, العلم المؤثر في النفس It's the knowledge that affects you and impels you to act. And the statement of the Prophet بِهِ يُفَقِّهُ فِي الدِّينِ This is hadith in Bukhari and muslim from the hadith of Muawiyah. Whoever Allah wants good for, he gives him fiqh, he gives him a detailed, deep understanding. Of the religion, or he gives him knowledge that he acts upon, because that's some of the scholars. They said the difference between understanding and fiqh is that fiqh is knowledge that you act upon, and faham is just you you know. Like I know it's halal, but you know, I know it's haram, but I still do it. But uh, they said that fiqh it means to really understand it properly, and. That's why I want to quote a statement from Al-Fudayl ibn Ri'ad, rahimahullah ta'ala. He said, "Inna al-faqih al-ladi antaqatul khushya wa askatetul khushya, wa ida qala qala bil-kitab wa al-sunnah, wa in qala qala bil-kitab wa al-sunnah, wa in sakata sakata bil-kitab wa al-sunnah." He said, "The person who has fiqd al-faqih." is someone who the fear of Allah makes him speak, and the fear of Allah makes him silent. When he speaks, he speaks by the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And when he's silent, he's silent because of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And yani the Qur'an and Sunnah tell him to be silent. And if the matter becomes unclear to him, إِلَىٰ He brings it back to the person who knows it. And Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimullah ta'ala, he said, ما عرفة nafs ما لها وما Fiqh is to know yourself what is counted for it and what is counted against it. We're going to come back to this because it is important. ما لها وما This is a very important stage in fiqh. Knowing what is in your favor and what is against you. As for the sort of technical definition of fiqh so we understand what it is there are many definitions and we don't have time to take all of them but we could say it is to know the rulings of the sharia that relate to actions Hmm. practical rulings why practical rulings what other rulings are there in the sharia that are not uh, amaliyah for example al itiqad for example issues of what you believe believe your belief, iman and things like that yes you have to implement them and practice them but these ahkam they are ahkam al-sharia and you could call them al-ilmiyyah and you have to know, You have to. And the, what is required from you is to know them. Like Allah's names and attributes. What is required from you, that's why some of the scholars, they called it Tawheed, At-Tawheedul uh, Or they called it Tawheedul Ma'rifati Wal-Ithbat. The Tawheed of knowing Allah and affirming who Allah is. That what is required from you is knowledge. Taib. there are some things, Ahkam in Islam, there are some rulings that are related to the actions you do how you pray and how you make wudu and your transactions with people. But where are these rulings taken from? They could be taken from two places. They could be taken from Al-Adillah <laughs> al ijmaliyah if that's the right term for it. They could be taken from Adilla ijmaliyah. Evidences which are general and summarized. For example, Al amru yufidul wujub. Every command that comes in the Quran tells you that this thing is wajib. Allah said, wa aqeemu salah. Perform the salah. You don't have to ask, is salah fard? Allah said, aqeemu salah. Salah is fard. طيب, what kind of evidence is this? It's a evidence which is. Ijmaliyyah it's generic, it's like it can be used for many ayat, it can be used for salah, it can be used for wudu, it can be used for it can be used for many, many, many different things. It can be used for mu'amalat, transactions, marriage, divorce, and it's like a principle in nature, and it covers all types of legislative rulings. Mostly we study this in Usul al fiqh Mostly we study this in usul in usul fiqh most of the time what we're looking for in fiqh in, in, in the madhab fiqhi generally speaking is we are looking at if we're talking about al furu al fiqhiya the branches of fiqh we're looking at al-adilla tu specific ayat on specific topics specific hadith on specific topics ya amanu or قمتم إلى الصلاة وجوهكم. All you who believe when you stand up to pray, wash your faces. وأيديكم إلى المرافق and your arms up to your elbows. برؤوسكم and wipe over your heads. إلى and wash your feet up to your ankles. Is this a generic evidence that's used in all areas of Sharia? No, it's a specific evidence that is used in what? In the issue of wudu, tahara. Maybe also you can bring it in the issue of salah. إِذَا قُمْتُمْ salat, You have to stand up to pray. But generally this is tahara. Salah is not something that's a principle you can apply to everything. So in general, and this is very summarized, it's not very detailed, it's not very you know accurate in the sense of everything. But generally speaking, al fiqh deals with the generic stuff, deals with the overriding principles. You can think of Usul al-fiqh as a toolkit by which you extract rulings from the Quran and the Sunnah and uh, any of the other evidences in Islam. As for for al-furu' al-fiqhiyya, what we call the branches of fiqh, or we call it fiqh itself, we're dealing with specific issues in specific things. We're not dealing with Aqeedah because we said Al Ahkam Al Amaliyas or the madhahib Fiqhiyah have nothing to say about Aqeedah, generally speaking. Any the Islam, the, the sciences of Islam are Mutadafila, right? You can't separate and say, I'm only ever going to study Fiqh and I'm never going to study Usul Fiqh. A'udhu Billah. Never going to take it. And you can't do that because Fiqh and so Usul everything goes together, right? You can't say, I'm going to study fiqh and I will never look at anything in the seerah. Because by default, you're going to come across things that are also in the seerah and you can't escape it. But in general, in general, al-madahib, al fiqhiya they do not deal with al itiqad. They don't deal with anything related to aqeedah. They deal with al al-amaliyah, the practical legislative rulings. There are lots of sciences within that are encompassed within the madhab, or within the, si- we, you can call them branches of fiqh. Uh, in other words, uh, what would we call them? Uh, we in, in, in our institute, we call it masar al-fiqhi wa usulihi Like the, 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 the path of studying fiqh has many sciences within it. And generally, I'm just going to talk to you about maybe four or five of them. So again, we have a good tasawwur of what you will expect to find in the madhab. So no doubt, fiqh requires all of the sciences of Islam. You have to have tafsir, you have to have good Arabic language, you have to have knowledge of hadith, what is authentic, what is not. You need all of it, right, to, to, to issue a ruling in Islam or study a ruling in Islam. You, you need to know all of the ahkam of fiqh, Right and the, I can't, sorry the fu of islam you need to know about tafsir you need to know hadith you need to know sirah you need to know arabic language but these typically are dealt with outside of the madhab why because pretty much they are dealt with together in other words it doesn't matter what madhab you are taking what curriculum you are taking you are still studying the same book of arabic language or any yani, to a greater or lesser extent But what are the sciences that the madhab got involved in? That's my question. So the madhab doesn't really get involved in Arabic. You don't get like Hanafi Arabic, Maliki Arabic, Shafi'i Arabic. A little bit in Usul al fiqh maybe, but this is like Dilalatul Al-Fav, what do words mean and things like that. You don't don't really get that. You don't really get tafsir. You don't get Hanafi tafsir and Shafi'i. Yes, you might get a mufassir who attributes themselves to the Shafi'i madhab, no problem. But you don't get necessarily a madhab that teaches you, a madhab fiqhi that teaches you tafsir. Allahumma, unless we're talking about tafsir ahkam the rulings of the ahkam of the Qur'an, then in this case, yes, because it's fiqh basically. The person is gonna teach you fiqh from the Qur'an. So they might teach you fiqh from the Qur'an upon the madhab of al-Imam Malik, fiqh from the Qur'an upon the madhab of imam (coughs) al-Shafi'i, for example, like that. But in general, hadith also yes certain scholars of hadith were hanafi others were Shafi'i, others were maliki others were hanbali but in general it's not like the hanafis don't take from musnad imam ahmed right we can't. I not mean, don't don't tell i don't take anything from that musnad it's a hanbali musnad they don't take it like that right it's outside of the madhab is that clear those topics hadith tafsir sira they're they are not yes the authors might be attributed to a madhab, but generally speaking, those books are not taught as part of the madhab fiqhi, so to speak. Does that mean the madhab fiqhi doesn't affect them? No, it does. It does affect them. Many times it does. In tafsir, you see an author who is shafi'i. Go to the ayah, you touched a a woman. What you're going to see? You're going to see this author, usually, he's going to support and use this ayah to validate the opinion of Imam al-Shafi'i ta'ala, regarding breaking the wudu when you touch a woman who is ajnabiya, for example. So here, you know, yes, it's going to affect what people write, but you don't go and study a madhab fiqhi and sit studying tafsir al-tabari. What do you study inside the madhab? There are a number of, there are actually lots, but I'm just going to talk about about six seven eight topics that are typically taught the first one is what we call al-furu' al fiqhiyah the branches of fiqh and this furu' fiqhiyyah is what people call fiqh yani they sometimes summarize it and call it fiqh yani I'm looking at al adilla al tafsiriyya I want wudu how do I do it I want to know how to make tahara I want to know about marriage divorce okay al-furu' al-fiqhiyyah is it organized it's organized by dividing it typically into two, into ibadat and muamalat. Ibadat are acts of worship, muamalat are dealings and transactions. So in muamalat, you find buying and selling, you find nikah, you find divorce, you find... And in muamalat, you find in ibadat, you find about prayer and you find about... So generally, the ibadat, what do you expect to find in there? You expect to find the four pillars of Islam minus the first one because the first one is Aqeedah. So you're going to find a salah You're going to find a zakah You're going to find a Salm, fasting. You're going to find Hajj. Also, usually, but not in every Madhab, but usually you're going to find Jihad also in Ibadat. Some of them put it in Mu'amalat. I'll be honest, I don't know in the books of the Ahnaf where they put it, but in some of the Shafi'iyah, you see that sometimes they put it in Usually they put it in ibadat, an act of worship, but sometimes they put it in mu'amalat. Because it, it has an aspect of both. Here. Like you're, you're talking about, you know, there are aspects of dealings with people and there are aspects of, of worshiping. In the issue of mu'amalat, you're going to find all the things that represent interactions between people. So you're going to find nikah, qalaq, Albayah, buying, selling, marriage, divorce, and later on, some of them make it a third category. Some of them don't break it into two. Some of them put in the third one. They put alhudud wa jinayat, punishments and crimes and punishments. And some of them put crimes and punishments just they, they add it in the end. And some of them separate different madhahib, different authors within the madhahib have there. But generally, you're going to find acts of worship. You're going to find dealings, and maybe at the end you're going to find crime and punishment. That's what you're going to find in there. This is al-furu' al fiqhiyah In other words, what people call fiqh. Then we come to usul al-fiqh. We said usul al-fiqh, it deals with al-adillatul ijmaliyah It deals with generic tools, which are evidences that can be used across the whole of the Qur'an and the sunnah. Like we mentioned, an amru yufid al-wujub. When you receive a command from Allah, the basic principle is that this command is Fardun Wajib upon you. It's Fardun Wajib upon you. Quick benefit on Fardun Wajib. There are istilahat, right? And this is actually a topic within within the, the broader topic of fiqh, is you should take al-madhhab tariqhul madhab al madhab. You should take the terminology of the madhab. For example, what does the word wajib mean in the books of the ahnaf? Is slightly different to the word wajib in the books of what they sometimes call the jumhur, the other three. Because generally in usul, they tend to be, a, you know, little, you know, somewhat close to each other. The Malikiyah, Shafi'i, and Hanabila, they tend to use each other's books in usul, and they tend to. So, the point is that the word might mean something different. So, someone comes and says to you, for example, two raka'at before fajr is wajib. First, you need to understand, sorry, one second, what do you mean by wajib? Is it fard? Is it sunnah mu'akkada? And that's so the point is you need to know your terminologies because you are going to get confused by the term wajib. Then, make it even more complicated. Some of the Madahib, especially the Hanabila. they might use the word wajib differently depending on what they're talking about. So for example, in hajj, when they talk about something that is wajib, and the difference between ar-ruqan, ar- 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 al wajibat the things that you cannot make up for, and if you leave them, you messed it up, and you, your ibadah is cancelled, and the things that you can make up for. For example, so there are all kinds of terminologies you should get used to, and that is its own topic. Uh, they sometimes call it istilahat al madhab, or sometimes they call it tarikh al madhab, the history of the madhab. So you know because it changes. This scholar, the early scholar, he uses this terminology. Have you ever seen, for example, the early Shafi'iyyah? when they use the word makruh? M- most of the time, they mean haram. Vast majority of the time, when they use the word makruh. They mean Haram. But their terminology is, so they'll say like, a zina Zina is Makrooh. They don't mean makrooh, yani. that if you do it, you don't get punished. Yani. So the point is that the word terminology could be different depending on the sheikh, depending on the time, depending on the book and so. From the sciences that we study within the science of Fiqh, is we study Al-Qawa'id al fiqhiyah the principles of fiqh. So now we're taking principles, qawa'id, you know, generic principles that we can apply, but they are fiqh principles. And sometimes they call them qawa'id usooliyah because they sometimes argue. Does this principle, is it really fiqh? Or have you just stolen it from Usul al-fiqh and put it in there? It happens sometimes. So you've got principles and rules you're learning. You've also got what some of them call for example, tabaqatul ashab, learning all the different people in the madhab. who were they? For example, the madhab started with the imam, and this is a big misconception. Any people think that the madhab, for example, of malik, is the opinions of an imam malik. This is a misconception, strike it out, cross it off, it's not even close. The madhab is attributed to the Imam, but in reality, the madhab goes through uh, malahil and tabaqat. For example, I give you a simple example. And imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, ta'ala, has two very famous students, right? Qadi Abu Yusuf and Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, rahimahumullah, ta'ala. Ta'ib. Abu Hanifa has opinions and they took it from him but then Abu Yusuf comes and makes different opinions to the opinions of Abu Hanifa he comes across a hadith or he he looks at the issue again and he changes his opinion then later on this is just this is just uh, you know a tabaqatul ula, at the first level then comes another then comes another then comes another and another and each one the madhab is growing yes not every person is so influential for example, if we look at the Shafi'i madhab, the first thing we have is Imam al Shafi'i split his life in two parts Al madhab al Qadim Al madhab al Jadeed. He has his old madhab and his new madhab. So, al Shafi'i is, is changing his madhab halfway through. So, they'll sometimes say, Wa fil Qadim. Yani in the old madhab, he had this opinion, and in the new madhab, he had this opinion. Then you have certain immense, you know, great scholars who came, maybe way later in time. And those scholars were so influential that the madhab almost becomes, they become a second imam for the madhab. For example, in the madhab uh, al-Shafi'i, al-Rafi'i, and al-Imam al-Nawwi, rahimahullah ta'ala. In the Hanbali madhab, Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, Ibn Taymiyyah comes and he just, Allah's... a third of the madhab is gone we brought a different different akwal now the point is the madhab is a living thing it's not Imam Malik Imam Ahmed it's them and their students and their students students and their students students and these key figures that come along and then people will criticize you or you took the Hanbali madhab but you took it from Zad al mustaqni and Zaad al mustaqni it has a male. Ila aqwal Shaykh al Islam Ibn Taymiyyah. Yani this, it goes towards Ibn Taymiyyah's preferences in the madhab yani what he preferred. And you're not traditional, you need to go to Al Hajawi, you need to go to you know you need to go to for example the the you need to go to Al Muathaq ibn Qudama and you need to take his books because you've gone and you've just you know you've so the point is, the madhab is living. There's people coming all the time that are reviewing and there's ihtilaf inside the madhab. The mad- that's the next misconception, that the madhab is one qawl. Inside the madhab, you have these hundreds if not thousands of scholars. Of course they don't agree on everything. And so you have ihtilaf. and often the ikhtilaaf is again brought back to key figures. For example, whose opinion do you take in this? Are you taking the qawl of Sheikh Islam ibn Taymiyyah in this issue? Or are you going with the traditional uh, qawl in the madhab that was before that? Which one are you taking? So this is important, Ikhwani. We know that the madhab, it doesn't stay stale. In fact, any madhab that stayed stale, the madhab died. Hold on the madhab died does that mean there were more than four madhahib the number of madahib fiqhiyya yani no one can count it except allah because in the beginning we're going to cover the history in the beginning people had people had many uh scholars they went to and people were taken from al and people were taken from many different many different scholars it wasn't like everyone in the world was going to those four imams and their students. They weren't in the beginning. They had many different scholars, and those scholars went outside of the, the madhab, and some of the madhab kind of stayed semi-famous. Like a Wahhiriya, Ibn Hazm kind of revived the madhab of Taud al-Wahhiri. Rahim Allah al Ibn Hazm really he, he like by himself he took that madhab and he made it a fifth madhab. The point is, the madhab were many, many madhab. So if we ask ourselves a question, what made these four madahib last the test of time? We said it's not that Jibreel brought them down. What made them last the test of time? Now we're starting to get to the heart of the matter. The first thing is the Khidmah that the students did for the madhab. The students did such a service to it. They wrote down what their sheikh said, it said abu hanifa rahimullah ta'ala never wrote a book it said that he didn't write a book in aqid or in fiqh and some of them attributed al-fiqh al-akbar to him and some of them said it's still his students his students wrote his students wrote the sheikh said this is the opinion of our sheikh a shafi he wrote but again he didn't write in fiqh. he wrote in usul he has risala but he didn't write in in fiqh itself his students came along and they wrote for him. They did khidmah. Also, these madahib, they are in general, they cover, they are shamila. They cover all of the aspects of fiqh, all of the abuab of fiqh. Some of the scholars have opinions in some topics, but they don't have opinions in others. For example, the early tabi'een, the great scholars of the early tabi'een, you don't find them having an opinion in all of the abwab of fiqh like can i gather together the opinions even a sahabi like abdullah ibn abbas or abdullah ibn mas'ud you cannot find for them an opinion in every single topic from the topics of fiqh that's the second reason the third reason is that fiqh is not one science we said fiqh is a collection of sciences we talked about usul fiqh al-qawaid al-fiqhiyah we talked about uh, al-jam' al farq looking at the issues that Appear to be similar, but in fact are or are different or issues where the same evidence is used and they're two different rulings and things like that al khilafiyat, The differences between within the madhab and outside of the madhab So now once you've taken you you're like an expert, you know like they say, sahib or nafas You are your blood is shafi'i And then you come and say what now do you do? Now you need to know the khilaf that happened between Abi Hanifa and a Shafi'i generally because the other madhahib there is khilaf, but it's, yani you can say a lot of it came between Imam Abi Hanifa ta'ala, and Imam a Shafi'i. So now, as in the madhhab, not the Imam, but the madhhab. So now you're an expert in the Shafi'i madhhab. You breathe Shafi'i madhhab and you know Shafi'i madhhab like you, you dream it at night. But now you need to know the issues in which. The Shafi'i and the Hanafi differed. So now you can understand the points where uh, Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala, was correct and the Madhab al Shafi'i is wrong. And yes, it happened. And many, many times Shaykh Rasab ibn Taymiyyah takes and he goes back and he takes, for example, the opinion of Abu Hanifa in a matter and he says, This is the Madhab now. And he imported it into the Hanbali Madhab. Why all of this is because they're looking for the truth attached to the Quran and the Sunnah and now you've taken you know your madhab but now you've got to go outside khilafiyat. what's the difference between this madhab and this madhab and why what caused it and so on on top of that you also uh, you study for example al fatawa what tanzeel you study the issue of fatawa so you listen to the sheikhs of the madhab. because now i've just studied theory you know, okay, I'm really good. I know all Shafi'i books. I memorized Minhaj and I'm, you know, I know, I started reading al majmu and I'm, I'm just, you know, I know Shafi'i Madhab. But now there's a problem. I'm not a mujtahid, alim. I'm not a great scholar who's qualified to do ijtihad. So what do I need to do if I want to be competent in my fiqh? I need to now read the fatawa of the great scholars of Islam. So now those great scholars, what did they give us their Fatwa, Because remember, a fatwa isn't really in the topic of al-furu' al fiqhiya to be honest. It doesn't come under fiqh, really. A fatwa is implementing fiqh upon the real world now. And usul al-fiqh and qawa'i al and all these sciences, now implement it for me, real life. Someone comes and says, Ya Shaykh, I said to my wife, taliqah, 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 you're divorced, divorced, divorced. Ya Shaykh, am I divorced or am not divorced? i know the madhab i know the qawl in the madhab i know the usool i know the qawait but now i need to see the sheikh when people came to him what did the sheikh give the fatwa for it okay what did you see about these sciences don't you see that they all go together could you imagine now sometimes people talk about are you allowed to go out of your madhab? could you imagine generally speaking if in the first day you started studying you took the usool of Abi Hanifa, ta'ala, and you took the fatawa of Al Qadi Hussein from the Shafi'iya, for example, and you took Zadul Mustaqni from the Hanabila in your Furu' Thaqiya, and then you went and took Malakis Sughod, the Nizam of Jam' al Jawami and the Maliki, in the Maliki poet who wrote it. You are going to be my brother lost. I'm not talking about what allowed is not allowed. You are going to try it. You are going to be so lost. You are not going to know where you are. Because this doesn't match with this. Doesn't match with this. It doesn't Yes, they're all taken from the Quran and the Sunnah. No doubt. But they have things that are consistent. So one of the great benefits and blessings of the madhab is what? Consistency. Not always truly consistent. But you know as much as you can. The person talking to you about usul is taking fiqh from the same book as you. The person talking to you about qawaid fiqhiyah is taking it from the same imams, not imam, because not one imam, the same ai am going to as you. So you end up with something that is like a consistent curriculum that you can actually follow. Now my brothers, I want to highlight a point here. We are not until this point talking about al muslimi the regular folk, al-awam. We're we talking about studying the madhab now. Like did you ever see a who studied, you know, al-jam'u'u al and like the differences in the opinions, and khilafiyat bain abi Hanifu and wa shafi'i, nobody, like no one from the regular Muslim studied this, right? But the people who are students of knowledge is very, very hard, two things are very hard. And I'm not shy, I'm gonna get in trouble for saying it, but I'm not shy, sure. it's two things are very, very hard. One is, it's very, very hard to do this without a Saraha, Yes, were there people who did it without a madhab? Yes. Historically, don't, <laughs> don't shoot the messenger. Historically, there were people and a significant group of people who said, we do not need this curriculum. We don't need these books. I'm going to go to the Quran, and I'm going to go to the Sunnah, and I'm going to go to... The statements of the scholars in general and I'm going to gather this knowledge. But the problem is you're going to gather it in what? al furu Al-Faqiyyah, Usul al fiqh al Al-Faqiyyah, al jam Al-Farq, al khilafiyyat You're going to take all of that stuff and you're going to find it to be a lot of effort. And in the end, are you really going to produce something better than what is in the four madahib when you went yourself and you did what they did. You didn't do anything else. Don't think, I went and I took the sunnah. <laughs> you didn't, you just... You just went and tried the same thing that they did, and you produced your curriculum, Muhammad Tim's curriculum, la Madhhabiya. Don't take your Madhab. He took it from the Kitab and the Sunnah. Ya, you're going to find it albaaf weaker than any of the Madhhab. Al Fakia. So it's very, very hard. People did it, Ibn Hazm. No, he supported it. Shaukani rahimahullah ta'ala supported it. Others, sometimes ashab al-madhab even. People from the madhab sometimes. Really, people from each of the four madhab who became, well, those are the ones that, they get in trouble. They they drifted away from the concept of the madhab. And they said, no. You know, I want to, this has just gone too far. I want the people to go to the kitab and the sunnah. But generally speaking, it is hard and it's a lot of effort for very little gain. Is it possible, ikhwani I'm going to get ups- I'm going to upset a whole bunch of other people as well. It has to be possible. It has to be qat'an and it has to be possible, because otherwise the luzum of that qawl is that Allah sent you down the Quran and gave you the Sunnah and it's not enough for you, and that is. قول باطل we believe that it's absolutely false you cannot say that Allah gave the Quran and the Sunnah and the Quran and the Sunnah are not enough for us Allahumma, Allahumma unless you say one thing the only argument you can bring and people brought this argument by the way Ibn Rajab famously Rahimullah الله ta'ala, Ibn Rajab al hanbali he wrote a book where he staunchly defended you have to choose one of the four madahib Like in this Sarahatan, it has problems with it. And one of the problems is that it has lawazim, it has consequences to it. So the reality is the Qur'an and the sunnah have to be enough. But also, the only real argument you could give is if there was ijma' upon taking from the four dahib. If there's ijma' that you're not allowed to go outside and there is not ijma' on this. And I don't think even the most staunch follower of a madhab can argue that there is ijma' on this issue. There is khilaf, there are scholars from all of the madhahib who went further, deeper. So in reality, you don't have la ayah, wala hadith, wala ijma'. You don't have an ayah, nor do you have a hadith, nor do you have ijma'. Ibn Rajab proves this. He brings what? Qiyas. Ibn Rajab, in his risala, where he tells you you have to be one of the four madhab. His qiyas is upon the qiraat al-saba. And you, ha- like, you have to read a qiraat from the qiraat. You know, you have to read a qiraat from the qiraat, so you have to take a method. This is qiyas ma'al This qiyas doesn't stand up to any scrutiny whatsoever. Rahimahullah ta'ala, the great imam, the imam, Hafidh bin Rajab. It's an amazing book, wallah. But in reality, the argument is, look, I don't have la ayah, wala hadith, wala... I don't have an ayah or hadith or ijma'ah. So it comes to like qiyas and you know trying to prove something. And so in reality I don't believe it is impossible for a person to have a tafaqquh without a madhab. But it's extremely hard and very very few people did it. Very few people achieved it. And in general very very few people achieved this issue of getting tafakkuh. even those who supported it. Shaykhun al-Shaykh Nasr al-Albani rahimahullah ta'ala. Very, you know, we know Shaykh Nasr, right? His introduction to Sifat Salat al Nabi and how he, take it from the Kitab and the Sunnah. Akhen shaykh Nasr rahmatullahi came from studying the Hanafi Madhab rahimahullah ta'ala. I'm not saying that the Shaykh would not have achieved what he achieved, but the point is that like, it's not easy to get that that without you know starting off with a curriculum so what i'm here to say to you is that the madhab ikhwani it is a curriculum for studying fiqh and the sciences connected to fiqh that's what it is it's not wahi jibreel didn't bring it down it's not masoom it's not a matter that i don't pray in a hanafi masjid and i don't marry a shafi woman this is this is this is how that when we hear the history of the madahib it got to this point wasala ila there were four jama'at around the kaaba one hanafi one maliki one shafii one hanbali you're not allowed to go and pray behind the other one Akhi, what is this what religion is this i don't know this from islam but to understand the madhab as a curriculum which gives you a curriculum that is consistent. Three things it's going to give you. A curriculum that is consistent, meaning that it's going to match. I opened the book of Usul, yeah, that's the same as what I found there. The book of Qaid, yeah, I that, found that there. It's going to match. Not completely, because we have ikhtilaf in the method, but it's going to match, roughly. The second thing is that it is tried and tested. And this is a good argument Ibn Rajab makes. And this is a, this is a true mm-hmm. argument, Annie. It is tried and tested. Annie, it's, you, you don't need to go and reinvent the wheel, Annie. It's tried and it's tested. Many, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people studied the books, graduated, got the fiqh, went on. Alhamdulillah. Jamil. It's tried and tested. So it's consistent and it's tried and tested and it goes with Stages, it's, it has gradual progression in it. So I can take a basic book in the madhab, for the Shafi'iyah. For example, I can start in Fura Al-Faqiyah with Matan shujaa, Then I can take, um, I can take, uh, for example, before a zubad I could take a zubad after that. I could take um, al yaqut Al-Nafis before that. Then I could take a zubad Then I could take umdat to Salik. And then I can take al-minhaj. Each one of them gets a little bit more difficult. And there's things I can memorize. Zubat is a manzuma, right? I can memorize the poetry for it. And then when I take the usool, I start with al-warakat, shafi'i author. I then go to, for example, uh, I mean, before that, if I, even if you end up with or something like that and you ended up with Shafi'i, you know consistent it's all matching up for me take the same thing and then everything like that so it's nice and consistent it's going to take me in stages and it's going to be tried and tested but just like the madhab has many 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 benefits many benefits just like it has فوائد, yani many many benefits and it's a great blessing there are also harms for the person who doesn't use it properly from among the harms for the person who doesn't use it properly is al-irad leaving the quran and the sunnah and by that i mean rejecting even a hadith or turning away from it or this taasub like extremism with regard to holding on to the madhab. Like we said, four jamaat, we don't pray with you, you can't marry this one, and uh, you know, you're know you not allowed to pray in the masjid of this person, and this kind of stuff. This was never present in the time of the four imams. Rather, it was probably, even you know, 500, 600 years after the hijrah, for a, to a certain extent, maybe before that there was some, where you started to have real ta'asub, in the Madhab, you started to have real uh, differences of opinion uh, after the time of the Tabi'een and then onwards. So you can say that until the middle of the 200s after the Hijrah, you didn't really have any Ta'asud madhhabi. Like extremism in following the madhab. That's why you see the imams are telling you either al-Hadith, bahu If the Hadith is authentic, it's my madhab. Don't take from me, but ask, look from where I took. All of these things are coming from the imams. So until about two hundred and fifty years after the Hijra, you really don't have ta'assul. What causes the madhab to spread? To be honest, what causes the madhab to spread in reality is, siyasa, politics. That's a fact, historical fact. What causes a madhab to spread is nothing other than politics. It's not the, this madhab was stronger, this madhab was weaker. Imam al-Bukhari, can you imagine if his madhab was collected and documented, the madhab of al-Bukhari? Some of them call it madhab Ahl al-Hadith, and it's, a, it's the fiqh madhab of Ahl al-Hadith. Some of them call it like that. But in reality, the reason a madhab became popular is because of politics someone was appointed chief judge for example abu yusuf rahim in his time was appointed the chief judge now as the chief judge he appoints all the other judges he's appointed hanafi jurists of course so now the hanafi madhab spreads because the those in authority have appointed the senior judges hanafi and he appoints his hanafi judges to go with him and then the madhab spreads and then what happens? to you know, two hundred years later, you see the Shafi'i madhab in that country all over the place. What happened? Politics. Somebody changed position. He got taken out. Someone died. Someone else got put in. He chose the Shafi'i juris. Now the the Amir of that mantika, the Amir of that area, tells everyone, "You have to be Shafi'i. We only we only doing qada. We only doing judges judgments upon the Shafi'i madhab." So now the Shafi'i madhab spreads. And that's why if you look at the world today recently, the Ottoman Empire relatively recently imposed the Hanafi Madhab upon the the courts, right? And so all of the countries that were under Ottoman rule, by and large, all of them had the Hanafi Madhab. When uh, Saudia was formed, Saudi Arabia was formed, again uh, the judges were from the Hanbali Madhab. The Saudis are not that, not, not that much of a fan of this whole no madhab thing, I mean, they're, not, they're not on that. I mean, that comes from I mean, the Ahlul Hadith in, in like, you know, for, for example, in, in India some of them really supported it and stuff like that. But in terms of like, they're not a great fan of it. So they implemented Hanbali Fiqh in the courts. Now when you go to Saudia, try to find someone who is teaching Matan Abi Shujaa, ah, you look from the top to the bottom, you find some guy hiding in the corner, They like, don't tell anybody. Akhizad al-mustaqni' and Akhsar al muqtasarat and Kafir al-mubtadi and you know, they're teaching, that they became the madhab in the country. Yes, there are people, alhamdulillah, there are people teaching the Haramain other madhab and things like that, but it's not widespread. Likewise, you look at the spread of the Maliki madhab in northern Africa. Many of those countries were Hanafi before that. What happened? Did they realize the Maliki madhab is much better or they got free copies of the Muatta. No, it's not like that. They don't actually use the Muatta, to be honest with you. They don't really refer to a Muatta, which is a shame because a Muatta is an amazing book of life, but they don't really like, have a lot of attachment to it. But it wasn't that they got given out free copies of the Muatta or something like that. It's quite simple. The politics changed, the judges changed, the Sultan changed, and the Maliki Madhab spreads. It's very rare. I can't say never, but it's very, very rare that a madhab spreads because of its virtue or because of the quality of the teaching. Mostly, yani most of the time, it spreads because of politics. Because somebody got appointed as a judge, some, one of the sultan, he says that you have to follow this madhab, and it becomes taught to the people and it becomes widely, it becomes widely spread. It could be, of course... Every principle has an exception. Yeah, for sure, you find, you do find, وَلِلَّهِ الْحَمْدِ you know, times where a madhab is spread because people love the books and they became accustomed to it and so on. Yeah, you find that. For example, the spread of the Hanbali madhab, not that I'm defending my madhab, but this, the spread of the Hanbali madhab in, Dimashq, in Damascus, in the Al-Madrasa al at the... Uh, you know, Ibn Khudama, muwaffaq ibn Khudama, and Abdul Ghani al Maqdisi, there was no Sultan there, there was no Sultan who enforced it. The, the Qadi was Shafi'i, Ibn Abi Asrun, he was a Shafi'i, Allah wa ta'ala, the, the chief justice of the region, and the, the, the courts were Shafi'i. But when the Shaykh started teaching a great alim with great knowledge and he started writing books, so people came and learned the Madhab, and it does spread through. Like the quality of teaching sometimes. We don't say the quality of the madhab, but the quality of the teaching, it does spread sometimes. Now, a lot of, yani Hanbali madhab, a lot of it spread around the world simply because of, for example, a lot of people graduating from Saudi universities. It's not a bad thing, and it's nothing wrong with it. I'm just, it's a historical fact. People graduated from universities, and they, You know they came and they when they teach their classes they teach what they know they teach what their teacher taught them they teach the Hanbali madhab and so it spread kind of online and things like that so you do get the madhab sometimes spread because of teaching quality or availability of teachers but a lot of time particularly in the past it was closely affiliated with politics and who got appointed and who didn't and who was in favor with the sultan and who didn't and that's why it even reached a very silly phase You know, honestly, it really did Um, a really, uh, you know, not praiseworthy face where the Sultan, for example, would bring the people to make fun of each other, like the Madahib, to attack each other for entertainment. So they would give you a mas'ala that is like really, really like, you know, it's extremely hard to understand the reality of it. You know, they would, they would give a mas'ala or they would give something that it's hard to understand. Or something like really impossible to exist. You know, like they, I mean, they said like really silly things. You know, like if a person uh, breaks wind and they had something there and then they, does it, their wudu break when they open this thing or does their, like they brought like just things that don't have any practical, it doesn't exist. Yeni, it doesn't, but they brought it. Why? We bring You know, on the right hand side, we have the noble Ahnaf, and on the left hand side, we have the noble Shafi'iyah, yalla let's see, hat, fight it out with each other. But it wasn't praiseworthy, it wasn't for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and none of the scholars of Islam and the scholars of those madahib who were upon the Qur'an and the sunnah, they didn't praise it. It was these people just arguing, you know, like jadal, and just going back and forward. وَكَانَ الْإِنسَانُ شَيْءٍ جَدَلًا Many times people just argue and then they start to attack each other and you know this is not what Islam was about and it's not why the madhab was formed. And that's why this ta'asub it came from around that stage. It came after 250 after the hijrah when the book started to be written. And of course when you write an opinion and then someone across the road writes a different opinion you get a little riled up you start to write a refutation of what they said right uh, guys jahil he doesn't know what he's talking about and you write and you defend yourself and then the other person comes and they defend and so okay in the beginning even you know 300 400 it's it's okay you know people there's a little bit of stubbornness there's a little bit of like this is my madhab and don't talk to me but it's not as bad until it gets to the stage where it becomes just partisanship uh, if the word is the right, you know, forming sects and sectarianism and partisanship and ta'asub and blindness and just everybody attacking each other and nobody respecting the Qur'an and the sunnah before respecting the imams. And this came, you know, particularly, you can say it got worse from the fall of Baghdad. Yeah, from 656 after the hijab or something like that this, now it, it really became like worse and worse and and worse I just want to talk about and I'm, I need to take a break because three o'clock we, we need to give you guys a break We've been saying for a long time I just want to talk about one side or one benefit here and this is why do people differ because this is another thing we as Muslims we really struggle with اختلاف or oh, الخلاف والاختلاف some of them said al-khilaf is مندوح and الاختلاف is madmoom some of them said this that the word خلاف just means you know, we didn't see quite the same way and it's not necessarily blameworthy but اختلاف, you know, we went head on some of them said this, but in any case there are three basic reasons why we have differences of opinion. The first one is the textual evidence, a difference in the actual evidence that we're going back to. Al-Shafi'i, he mentions in jummaul ilm nobody has men- memorized all of the hadith of the Prophet And we know if we just look at the hadith that were narrated, not memorized, but narrated, We see that, for example, in general, uh, Imam Abu Hanifa, he was considered to be muqil, And it's not correct to say that he was da'if al-hadith. I don't believe it's correct to say that he was weak in hadith. I think this is not correct. I don't think there's an evidence for it. Rather, he was muqil and he didn't narrate a lot of hadith. And he didn't narrate large volumes and volumes and volumes of hadith, generally speaking. How many hadith he knew? Al-ilmu Allah. But he didn't. Narrate lots and lots and lots of hadith. Some of them were were rough on him. They said, Da'if al-Hadith, he wasn't strong. But it's not the reason. He was muqil. He didn't have so many hadith that he narrated. And there's nothing wrong with that. The second is, for example, Al-Imam Malik, we have (laughs) Al-Mu'atta. Al-Imam al-Shafi'i is considered to be an, an Imam Malik. I and mean, himself, if you look at Ahmed and Shafi'i and Malik, this is considered to be a silsila al-dhahabiya and imr al-hadith. I and mean, the highest standard of hadith is a hadith narrated by Ahmed from a Shafi'i, from Malik, from Nafi'i, from Abdullah ibn Umar. They say, radiallahu anhumah, they say this is the highest standard of hadith that exists. So they, they were I mukthirun mean, and they had. They said Imam Ahmed memorized alfa, alfi hadith, a million hadith. And they were, they were busy narrating hadith and, and going back and forward with hadith. They were busy with it. Not everybody has all of the hadith, not Imam Ahmed and not everybody else. That's why Imam shafii says to Imam Ahmed, you are more knowledgeable about hadith than me. So when you have a hadith, inform me about it, whether it is from Iraq or from Sham, tell me about this hadith, give me this hadith. If you know a hadith, give it to me. I haven't memorized every single hadith. Remember, when did Imam al-Bukhari write his sahih? Imam al-Bukhari died 256 after the Hijrah, right? Generally, the, the, the books of hadith, apart from the Muatta, Imam Malik is 190, whatever. Uh, Imam Malik of the Muwatta, the, these main, the Qutbah Sitta, all of them are written around this time, in the 200s, mid 200s, or the early to mid 200s after the Hijra in 240, 250, whatever. They're written at this time. That means that in general, neither did Imam Abu Hanifa nor did Imam Malik nor did really a and ahmed because they are really that they are the ones bukhari is narrating from not the ones that they no, none of them had you know bukhari and muslim and abu daud nasai thirmidhi ibn majah and Rasat looking through it and saying okay this is my madhab from this hadith they they traveled they memorized they took narrations they reported them they tried their best so this is the first reason you have ikhtilaf one person knows a hadith one person doesn't and there's a misconception here which a lot of people have and this misconception is they think that it's impossible to know where your imam god is huqam from this is ajib like the books of the madhab are not like this ikhwan. they are not generally you go through and studying fiqh you start off at marhala to somebody just tells you look you pray like this put your hands on your chest put your hands on your navel whatever it is just your your teacher says this is where you put your hands Halas. come tomorrow then you come to Marhalatul Tadlil. now your teacher says put your hands on your chest because of the hadith of Wail ibn hajar someone else comes and says but that's c- coming later yani, but the point is someone says put your hands on your chest because of the hadith of Wail ibn hajar now we have عنه, now we have the hukum and we have the Dalil. But the dalil on its own is not enough. Let me give you a beautiful example. It's my favorite example. I'm going to tell you, my brothers, a dalil, I'm going to talk about the issue, a very controversial issue. I'm going to talk about Rafa'ali. Raising your hands in the prayer. I'm going to give you a dalil. Now pay attention to this dalil. Don't they see the camel, how it was created? Is it not a dalil? Is it not an ayah? You say, Akhi Muhammad, I'm sorry. You brought me a dalil, but it's got nothing to do at all with Rafa al-Yadain. It's not even, it has no connection to it at all. So you brought me a dalil, but what's the problem here? I say, listen, Akhi, you asked me for a dalil and I gave you a dalil. You asked me for an ayah, a hadith, ijma. I brought you an ayah. What's your problem? You see, hold on. The problem here is what we call wedhul istidlal. How the person uses the dalil. Sah? How did that, this person? He got the dalil, but he used the dalil wrong. This dalil has no connection to the issue of raf al Day, not for it, not against it. it. Has no connection to it at all. It could be a dalil for something else, but it's not a dalil for what we're talking about. So the problem here is the usage of the dalil is wrong. You then come to a stage which we might call Marhalatu Tahrir. Where you start to, or before that, before that, maybe before that, you come to a stage of uh, what they sometimes call Al uh, Muqaran المقارن or Al Muqarana, the issue of comparing other people's opinions. So now I got Dalil. Okay, you with me? I've got Dalil. I've got a poll. I've got a Dalil. I've got a call, I've got a delil. I've taken a call in the issue of Rafi al The fact that Abdullah ibn Umar, it's reported that he left it after he started it. And that people accompanied him for a year and they never saw him raising his hands. It's delil, right? Delil. Wajal is correct, right? I used it, you know, we used it with a valid delil for a valid issue. But now there's an issue I need to know. And this comes back to the statement of al-Imam al-Humam, Abu Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala, which he said, ma'rifatu ma wa ma'alayka. Now I need to know something else. I need to know what delil is for me and what delil is against me. Because someone else comes and says, I have 17 of the companions or I have a number of the companions, all of them reported that the Prophet raised his hands. Okay, but now I've got a problem. I had a dalil. I had wajal istidlal, right? I used it correctly. But my problem is what? My problem is now I'm learning the other guy's dalil. And maybe, I'm not here to talk about fiqh. I mean, what, don't worry about it. I'm just giving an example. Now I come to this issue. Maybe his dalil is actually better than the dalil that I had. I had dalil, I used it correctly. And that's why Abu Hanifa describes fiqh. Ma'rifatu, and nafs, knowing your soul. Maa laha wa maa alayha, Knowing what is on your side and what's against you. In other words, you cannot be faqih until you know what the other guy has. Inside the madhab to begin with, because we don't want to like, dive in the deep end too early. Start, you know, inside the madhab. Did all of the Shafi'i agree upon this? Or there's a qawl, do so we go with al-rafi'i, al-nawawi, uh, and where, where are we here? And then later on, outside of the madhab, Because perhaps the truth in this issue isn't in the shafi'i madhab at all. Even some masail, and I believe it's true, there are some masail, wallahu aalam that the truth is not in any of the four madhab. In other words, it's not a qawlun mu'tamad in any of the four madhab. It's rare, but it is true, you can get Masail, where it's not a qaul mu'tamad in the form of the and it's a qaul shad. The Hanafi said it, but very few. And some Shafi said it, but very few. It's not like it's not considered to be acceptable, and it's not considered to be mainstream in the in the madhab, right? It's not. It's not considered to be. So it's qaul shad. But you look at the evidence and you say, I wallahi, the Qur'an, the Sunnah, and what they took, and I look at their virtual and their delil, and wallahi, I personally believe that the Rajih, the correct issue in this matter, is not a qawl mu'tamad in any single madhab. It's very rare, extremely rare, but I believe it's not impossible. Because we said Jibreel didn't bring down the madahir. And you're gonna say, Akhi Muhammad, Allah hadik. Akhi Muhammad, do you not believe in ijma'ah? Of course. But the four madhaib are not ijma, Ikhwani, if Abu Hanifa and Malik and Shafi and Ahmad agree on something, this is not ijma. Ijma is the agreement of the scholars of a particular time. It's the agreement of scholars of a particular time. Were there other scholars in the time of Abu Hanifa? There were. We have to also listen. Were there other scholars in the time of Imam Ahmad? There were. We have to also listen. Were there other scholars in the time of Imam Malik? So, just because these four agree on something, it does not necessarily equate to Ijma'. You might say, Ittafaqa al madahib al The madahib al they agreed on it. That's very good. And it's very strong, right? If all four agreed, it's very strong. I'm not saying it's not strong. But I'm saying just because the four of them agreed, it doesn't equate to Ijma' necessarily. It might be Ijma', it might not be. Ijma'a consensus. Therefore, it might be possible the issue is not even present in it. So you must know ma'laka wa ma'alaik. And this, to some people, will lie. it's very sad. They actually strip their madhab of this. They make it out that you, ayyuha talib, there is no way that you can know the evidence that your sheikh had. I'm not saying disrespect your sheikh, I'm not saying. Shaykh And you don't have any evidence And Shaykh wallah I don't know where you brought this from In Jabek your pocket or... No it's not disrespecting your Shaykh But eventually you will learn Where did your Shaykh take his opinion from I don't know how anyone can study a madhab At an advanced level Without knowing ma wa What evidence do you have And what evidence comes against you Then you come maybe to the level of tahrir, where you yourself start to say, you know what it is? I incline towards the view of Al-Imam Abi Hanifa in this issue. I personally, when I looked at what Shafi'i said, what was for him, what was against him, and I looked at what Malik said, what was for him, what was against him. Remember, I've studied the madhab in detail, for several years. I've taken from shuyukh. I've listened to what they said. But I start to, you know, I start to have a sage of Tahrir, I start to be able to start now to maybe have a preference. Now, we're not saying that I'm going and just rewriting the madhab and I'm, you know, madhab. we're not Shaykh Islam Ta'ala, We're not, you know, we're not going and changing around the madhab. Not at all. But it is true that every student will eventually reach a level where they start to make tarjih in issues. They start to have preferences. That is why, Khwani, do you believe today, if I go to, for example, as an example, if I go to a, a, a Dar al-Ulum, for example, or a, you know something like that. And if I go and sit on the, the uh, study the Hanafi madhab there, for example, for those that teach that madhab, do you think that their scholars don't have tarjihat? I'm not, no disrespect, honestly, do you think their scholars don't have preferences? Do you think that their scholars, that the scholars of Darul Uloom, didn't choose some matters over others and prefer some opinions in the madhab over others? Look at the fatwa of Sheikh Taqeed Deen. There's nobody, like, you cannot argue this. This is like a fact, historical fact. You have tarjihat. People will get to a stage where they will prefer some opinions and go away from some opinions. Some of those opinions they go away from will be the opinions of al-Imam, al azam the great imam, the, the, the imam that is the founder of the madhab. How many opinions today in any one madhab, do we believe actually came from Mansur, the nas of that imam? Not as many as you would think. I don't know per percentage, it could be more or less, but not as many as you think. And that actually responds a little bit to those people who are like, yeah, but my imam is better than your imam. Tayyip, no doubt. al wal we agree with you. Your imam is better than my imam. But the musibah is, you're not taking from your imam, Akhir. You're taking the tarjihat of the guy who leads the salah in the masjid don't talk to me about imam al-a'zam don't tell me this great imam he met anas ibn malik he met some of the Tabi'in. he was a great don't tell me this because you're not taking what he said you're taking this whole history of people and some of that history is influenced by the very person who sits in front of you to teach you some might say no because we have in our tradition you know, we, in our tradition, the people who teach the madhab to the, to the younger people, they are also, you know, strict upon the taqleed of their shuyukh. But still, go, okay, no, not him, not your teacher, your teacher's teacher. Eventually, you're going to get influences upon the madhab that didn't come, la- not from the imam, not from the students of imam, not from someone 200 years ago, from someone who lived, maybe still alive today. And that's not bad. Just don't put the wool over your eyes and say that, you know, I'm putting my footsteps in the feet of the great Imam, <laughs> before you, you, you couldn't, you didn't have a chance. Because for example, if we look at the life of Abu ta'ala, <laughs> before you even put your footsteps where he stood, Abu Yusuf came and took his footsteps away and put them somewhere else. So you don't have the ability to do that. You don't. So yes, there's great Imams. We love our great Imams, تعالى, but don't put the will over your eyes and tell yourself that I am the shadow of this Imam. In reality, you are influenced by all the people who came after that Imam. All of them. Until your teacher who sits in front of you, who is going to make what? tarjihat. He's going to say to you, this is the rajih in the Madhab. This is, our this is our opinion, this is what we believe to be correct. And over time, so people grow. One mistake people have is to believe, and I believe it's a mistake, and it's controversial, but I believe it's a mistake, is that people believe that the issue is taqlid or ijtihad? Salah, me personally, I'll be honest with you. I don't believe that that is the waqi' I believe that that's wrong from, it might be theoretically correct, but I believe in reality, it doesn't exist. N- nobody, for example, was muqallid, haqqa taqlid, proper taqlid, you know, taqlid, taqlid. And then they woke up one morning and after they had their cornflakes, they became mujtahid. Hada la Doesn't happen. Rather, they grew day by day, mas'ala by mas'ala. We told you, Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah ta'ala, he went to Hamad ibn Salama, rahimahullah, and he asked him about seeking knowledge. And he told him, fi kulli thalatha mas'ail. learn three mas'ail every single day. And don't do anything more than that until he became an imam and a faqeeh that the people used to point with their fingers when he would walk past. Look at the imam. The point is it's a gradual approach, right? When you start, you do start with taqlid, taqlid, yani haqqa taqlid, yani. Your teacher says, put your hands on your chest, sami'na wa a'ta'na. You put them on your chest. Ya you don't know La Bukhari, wala muslim, wala, you don't know mustalah, and you don't know Usul, and you don't know anything. Your teacher said, do it. That's okay. Because what are you doing? You took the person who is most qualified that you could access. You didn't go phone uh, Imam Malik. Imam Malik. You know in the Mu'tah, you have the hands on the chest. But uh, I see your followers with the hands down by the sides. Can you just help me out here, Sheikh? Nobody did this. What you did is you went to the most knowledgeable person you had access to who is teaching you fiqh. And what did you do? You took fiqh from him, in the beginning, you just got tasawwur al nasaat, you just you understood like tahara, wudu okay, types of water okay, uh, using water, getting rid of najasat. okay, making wudu, alright, what do you do with the extra water in wudu, like, you just got an idea of what fiqh is and then you start to grow and grow and grow, you start to get dalil and all of the madhahib I don't know, wallahi, it's dhulm upon people to say that the madhab doesn't give dalil I do not know any madhab which doesn't give Dalil. He's gonna bring you Dalil, he's gonna bring you... Th- in fact, they give Dalil like, they shout it from the rooftops because they want to show that their opinion is stronger. This is my evidence and I have this and I have this and I have this and I have this. So, in reality, the, you're going to start getting Dalil slowly. Then you're gonna start realizing that all of your teachers don't have the same opinion. And that our beloved Shaykh, Shaykh Abdullah has a different opinion from our beloved Shaykh, Shaykh Abdurrahman. And they're both on the same madhab from the same books. But you realize there's ihtilaf within the madhab. And as you grow, you realize that there's a world outside of your madhab, And you realize that wallahi, it's true. That, n- that the prayer of the Prophet wallahi, inni la uqsim billah, it does not exist in any madhab completely. And I think that Shafi'i has quotes like this, Ahmed has quotes like this. There is no single madhab that gathers all of what the Prophet ﷺ used to do perfectly. So you realize there's a world outside your madhab. You know, you've been taught, you've grown up in the Shafi'i madhab, you've been taught just keep away from those hanafis guys, they're dangerous. Don't take from them Sahab Ra'i. We don't take from our, you know, they're, they're intelligent, they're using their opinions and reasoning you from Ashab al hadith, don't take it from them, don't look at their books. But after a while you reach a level where you realize that guys, they got some things right that the others got wrong. And you start to say, okay, now I'm now qualified through my teacher, my sheikh, to take some of the khilafiyat, the differences between the madahib or what they call al-fiqh, al-muqaran, comparative fiqh. And start to learn, ma wa ma alayka? You know, okay, here you are flying the flag of the madhab and then you look at all your delil, and you now have to look at the other person's delil, and you have to be honest with yourself for Allah, sincerely for Allah. Is my delil stronger or their delil stronger? And sometimes in the beginning, you don't feel confident. You're like, look, I'm, you know, I'm on safe ground here. I'm following great imams of the past, so I'm, my feet are on the ground. I'm happy. So you're okay with it, but as time goes on, you get a little more confident, you grow a little bit, you get a little bit more knowledgeable, a bit more usul, more study of hadith, more study of ayat, and if you're being true to yourself and honest to yourself, you will sometimes have moments where the sunnah becomes clear to you. And a shafii reported, ijma, consensus. Bear in mind, who did a shafii meet? He met the students of Abi Hanifah he was the student of Imam Malik, Imam Shafi'i. He narrated a hadith from Imam Malik, and he was the companion of an Imam Ahmad. So when a Shafi'i narrates ijma', this is the ijma' of the students of Abi Hanifa, as well as the ijma' of a Shafi'i himself, as well as the ijma' of Malik and Ahmad. He said, "Ajma' al-Ulama." The scholars have consensus. Anna man sunnah, an Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam." the one that the Sunnah becomes clear to a person, it is not allowed for them to leave it for the speech of anyone, man whoever they are. Consensus, he didn't say, this is only for the students, only for the teachers. Ijma' that if the Sunnah is clear to you, this is the key word, istabanat, it becomes clear to you, haram for you to take anyone else's speech other than the Prophet wasallam. However, the sunnah doesn't become clear on day one oh, we agreed Yani? like the first day you study and you're like yeah i know you know like you see some people you do yeah yani, a little bit of taassib on issues you know i take the opinion of our shaykh shaykh al-albani Allah ta'ala on the issue of the niqab like can you until now akhi, you don't know not the hadith nor the level of the hadith nor do you know the principles of it nor do you know the fiqh of it nor do you know what the evidence of the other person is so you know, before you shout from the rooftops, you need to know, you need to grow a bit. But as you grow in your learning of Islam, there are times when the Sunnah becomes clear to you. And there are times, and when the Sunnah becomes clear to you, you owe it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you do not leave the wahi for the opinion of people. And that's progress, it's not something that is like in everything. Some of the scholars are suity, I think Rahim Ta'ala, he said, 40 years I took a mas'ala, I didn't know what the rajih in the mas'ala was. And something like that, he said, 40 something years, 40 years, around 40 years, I took an, I had an issue, I had no idea what the, the sunnah was in it. I have no idea. So the reality is, as it becomes clear to you, you will take the sunnah, because your heart is attached to the sunnah, even inside your madhab, before everyone gets angry and says you're telling them to go out the madhab again. Before that, even within your madhab, you will see that one great scholar has one opinion, one has the other. But for you soon, the sunnah becomes clear to you and you say, yeah, I'm with this one. You know, it happens, it's natural growth of knowledge that happens. All the time, the student becomes more and more and more and more knowledgeable. Will they ever reach the level of the mujtahid? In the first place, the scholars disagree whether ijtihad mutlaq even exists today. And some of them say there is no absolute ijtihad. In reality, everyone who gives a fatwa today, even from their own ijtihad, they give it from one of the scholars of the past. Yani, Yani they they bring like Abu Hanifa said this, I I believe Abu Hanifa was correct, I believe al-Shafi'i was correct in this, but they don't, you know, they don't bring you something from themselves. But in reality, even if we say the door is open, which is, I believe, has to be the stronger opinion because in reality you have nawazir, you have new issues, you have calamities that happen where people have to make ijtihad. So I don't think ijtihad is closed. But whatever it is, very few people reach the level of an ijtihad, where they don't, don't tell me what any imam said, just give me the ayah, don't tell me the tafsir, I'm gonna make it all for myself. Very few people reach that level. Some of the scholars said nobody reached that level in our time. I don't think that's quite true, but it, it, really very, very few people reach that level. But you do start to become more familiar with the evidences and more comfortable and more likely to prefer something over something else. There's a beautiful book, wallahi, I believe everybody should read it. And I'm sure there's some people who would not like me to say this. But wallahi, you really, this is, if you want to know, you, want, you always get told off, you know. You Salafis don't like the Imams. We do, you know it. You don't like the four Imams. Let me quote you from Raf'ul Malam. Who wrote Raf'ul Malam? This book, Raf'ul Malam, Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimullah ta'ala. He wrote it to defend the four Imams. It's a book defending the four Imams. It's called Raf'ul Malam. He said, Let it be known that there is no one from the Imams who have been accepted by the Ummah, meaning the great Imams of Islam, Abu Hanifa, Malik, Shafi'i, and Ahmed, whoever deliberately intended to go against the Messenger of Allah in anything from his Sunnah, large or small, they were without doubt agreed upon the obligation of following the Messenger. And the fact that every one of the people has some of their statements accepted and others rejected except the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa However, if an opinion of one of them is found, while there's an authentic hadith which opposes it, there must be a reason why they left that hadith. Ya you Salam. Know, is defending it. He's saying, if you saw there was a hadith, an authentic hadith, And you saw Abu Hanifa give a fatwa which opposes a hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, know that there has to be a reason why the imam did it. No way did he do it to oppose the sunnah. No chance. He has to have had a sabab, a reason why he did it. There has to be a reason. Because not one of those imams ever deliberately intended to oppose the sunnah in anything large or small. He's writing this book to defend the imams. When the people say that the imams went against the sunnah, the imam opposed the hadith, he didn't. But there's an important issue here. Very important issue. So, for example, it might be the imam never got the hadith. It might be that the hadith had a weak chain when it reached him and an authentic chain when it reached somebody else. Or it might be that the imam didn't remember the hadith at the time. It happened to Umar radiallahu an that sometimes he forgot a hadith. There are examples in the sunnah of Umar forgetting a hadith that was said to him. And then later he's reminded by one of the Sahaba and he, he takes it. So in any case, it's important to note something very important. Even though the Imam is excused. Even though the Imam is excused. The Imam gets one reward, even if he gets it wrong, he gets one reward. It doesn't mean that we are all excused with the Imam does that make sense i mean this might i mean people this might be difficult but try to try to follow me on this the imam is ma'dhur excused why because he's de- he's mujtahid he's deserving of ijtihad and the mujtahid either asaba if he gets it right falahu ajran he gets two rewards wa idha akhta falahu he gets one reward so the imam either got two rewards for getting it right or one reward for getting it wrong you ya abdullah come you know, uh, call it 1300 years, 1350 years later. And the sunnah becomes clear to you in a matter, and you say, no, no, because if I follow Imam Malik, I'm gonna get one reward. the one reward is for him, not for you. (coughs) It's for him that he tried his best with what he had, and he came to the truth. And you must also try your best with what you have. You must also, yani, try your best. So you also cannot hide behind that shield and say, this. A Shafi'i said, Ajma'un nas ala man is lahu sunna tun, sunna tun nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, lam yakun lahu, an yada ahadi kawli min al nas. Second reason why the scholars differ, I'm trying for the break, honestly. Second reason why the scholars differ, they differ because of al-luratul Arabiya. So now, Imam Malik quotes an ayah, and Imam Ahmad quotes an ayah and the two of them differ about it. It's an ayah, there's no issue of authenticity, there's no issue of the hadith didn't reach them. They both quote the ayah, and they differ about it. For example, If you have touched a woman and you don't find water, provide tayammum with clean earth. In here, the Jumhur, which here are the Hanafiya, the Malikiyya and the Hanabila on one side. And on the other side, Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah wa rahimahullah al-jameel. Both of them quote the ayah. Both of them say, my evidence is the ayah. One of them says that touching the hand of a woman or touching uh, a woman reco- breaks your wudu, and the others say it doesn't. Both of them quote the same ayah. It's no chance they didn't memorize the ayah, didn't know, they, they all memorized the ayah. No chance they didn't remember the ayah, they both quoted the ayah. What's the problem here? Al-Lugatul Arabiya, the Arabic language, the word "lamps" in the Arabic language can mean to touch, and it can mean marital intimacy. Both. And both meanings are found in the Quran. So the Qur'an uses the word lems for both. So now you can't say, okay, Arabic, but the Qur'an only uses it for this. No, the Qur'an uses it for, to mean marital intimacy, and the Qur'an also uses the same word to mean touching. So now the, the basic difference, there are other reasons, they're supporting evidences, they're not just mentioning one ayah, but here the real difference is al the Arabic language came with both meanings. وَالْمُطَلَّقَاتُ يَتَرَبَّصْنَا بِأَنفُسِهِنَّ ثَلَاثَةَ قروة. Three quroo. The word qar came in the Arabic language meaning al-hayd, meaning menstruation. And the word qar came in the Arabic language meaning al-tuhr, meaning purification. So the scholars differed among themselves. Both of them quoted the ayah. One of them said quroo means three periods of purity. And one of them said three menstrual periods. Because the word qar comes with both meanings in the Arabic language. So the point is this, and then the third reason they differ is because of the usul. The third reason they, do, they differ is because of usul al fiqh and al qawaid al fiqhiyya. That they have different usul. For example, as I said, I'm not, you know, we are not uh, the world's greatest expert in the usul of the ahnaf, for example. But one of the things we see a lot in their books of fiqh from the point of view of usul, is the issue of what happens when the rawi, the narrator of a hadith, doesn't act upon the hadith that he narrated. Tayyib? A narrator, Abdullah ibn Umar r.a. or someone else, narrates a hadith, but then his companions narrate that Abdullah ibn Umar did not practice this hadith himself. He narrated it but he didn't practice it. What I saw, and I'm not, forgive me for the brothers, يعني, who are experts in the madhhab, I'm not an expert, but as we saw, that generally speaking, from the usool of the ahnaf in this issue, is that they will go with the action of the rawi, rather than the hadith which is narrated. Yani, they will take that the action of Abdullah ibn Umar here, supersedes his statement, which is a sensible position. Yani, it's, it, it doesn't, and it's, it's not crazy to say that someone narrated a hadith and then later on he didn't do what he narrated and so we follow what he did rather than what he said. I'm sure it's more complicated than that. I'm sure there's Khilaf on it. I'm sure there's many books of Usul written about it. But just a simple point. Other scholars, they said, no, he might have forgotten the hadith. He might have had a reason why he didn't implement it, like some uh, sickness. It might be the narrations about him leaving it are weak. So no, we we don't really mind if the Rawi leaves the hadith to us, it only matters the hadith is authentic. We're not interested whether the the narrator left it or didn't leave it. And others other than Abdullah ibn Umar did it as well. So we're not, you know, from our point of view, our usul, we are not really concerned if a narrator stops practicing the hadith that they narrate. The Shafi'iyah, in the issue of saddu al stopping the things that lead to haram. The Shafi'iyyah they said, generally speaking, the Usul, that unless the dhari'ah is mansoosa, it's specifically mentioned that it's a means to that. the haram. We don't prohibit it. We don't prohibit it. We don't prohibit something because I personally think it's dangerous. We only prohibit it if the danger is Mansus. It's specifically mentioned that there is a danger in it. And the very here the, the, the path that leads to the danger, we are not going to accept this as being dangerous or prohibited unless the danger you're scared of is it is, the dhari'ah here is Mansusa. It's specifically mentioned in the text. Again, generally speaking, we're not, you know, we're not taking out al-fiqh today, you know, but just as an idea. Others said, no, if it is understood, if we come together and we see that there is a danger in something and it's leading to haram, we consider it to be haram, even if that specific haram is not mentioned in the, in the text. But in general here, uh, the issue, there's, a, there's a, a series of books that you take called Takhrij al furu ala al usul How do you apply usuli principles to fiqhi rulings? How do you take these principles and apply them to rulings? There's a science called Takhrij al furu ala al usul Applying the fundamental principles to the subsidiary matters. And you take in the matter like, for example, the issue of wudu and applying the soul of the madhab to that issue it's called al-furu' so here we understood that these are the reasons why people differ and i would highly recommend the book al-Malam so you will have your you know proper respect for the scholars of islam and you understand why those scholars differed with each other and you understand that doesn't mean what's the misconception it doesn't mean that both of them are right there are two types of ikhtilaf. ikhtilaf and ikhtilaf u ikhtilaf it means two scholars differed, but their opinions are not contradictory. One scholar and another scholar differed about something, but their opinions don't clash with each other. For example, they said you can do this or do that. It's permissible for this or that or they said this is preferred but this is allowed but what do you do when there's tabad I mean, they really clashed with each other They one said halal one said haram in this case one of them is right and the other one has to be wrong but ultimately as we said as we grow in knowledge the sunnah becomes clear to us so we our allegiance is to Allah and his messenger and not to The particular madhab or the particular sheikh or the particular school that taught me this particular matter. I don't know about you, but I need a break right now. So I think we should, I think, wallah, we should take a break. We were supposed to take a break like an hour ago. But uh, wallah, I I told you, I think we taught, it's it's like 26 hours we taught this topic. So I'm not going to give you 26 hours, don't worry. We're supposed to finish by asr. I will do my best in the break to try to like sort things out and try to you know, highlight some things and whatever. But inshallah, everyone's listening to the general message, right? You're getting the general message, the role of the madhab. What we do need to talk about is the role of the madhab for the hour. That's going to come after the break. How, do we, how does the regular Muslim who is not studying fiqh at all, to what extent are they taking from the madhab or not? that also has to be uh, it has to be discussed hada wallahu a'lam was wa was-salam ala nabīna muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. my brothers we take a break for call it 10 minutes inshallah 10 minutes stretch your legs uh what we can do is we are ready to replace the battery in this. Uh, it's the second set of batteries, so I have a new battery in this one. Just two. Okay. If we can ask all of the brothers to come back inshallah, we're going to resume our discussion bi ta'ala. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen Was salatu wa salam ala abdullahi wa rasulih Nabiya Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajmain Amma ba'd So inshaAllah ta'ala this is how the program is going to go for the next 45 minutes inshaAllah We're going to finish our topic in the next I mean Adhan is 4.30 I believe here And the Salah would be 4.45 So we might go between the Adhan and the iqama a little bit, but we're going to, inshaAllah, finish our topic by then, bi-ithni ta'ala. What we will then do is break for Asr prayer, and after Asr we will have Q&A. Now, my encouragement to the brothers and sisters would be, where possible, I have no problem with the brothers coming to ask questions, and privately, no issues, but I just feel like sometimes your questions are so good, and you can benefit everybody, so... You know, bring your questions uh, on paper and after Asr we will answer and then whatever we don't answer on paper, we should have a little time just to pass by some of the brothers who had some questions. So let's just talk a little bit about the stages of development of the Madahib. In the beginning, the Prophet SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam, he was the only teacher there was no other teacher except him sallallahu alaihi wasallam and then those that he appointed as teachers like muadh ibn jabal Radiallahu an and in the end of this at this time in the time of prophethood it's the time of revelation right there is no or almost no ikhtilaf almost no you can't say none sometimes the sahaba were away sometimes but there is almost no serious difference of opinion. Why is that? Because any difference of opinion that becomes serious, where are they going to go back to? Back to the Prophet wasallam during his life. Or oh, Messenger of Allah. So and so did this and so and so did that. Which one of them is right? So the differences of opinion among the Sahaba were extremely, extremely small. There's another difference, another reason why the Uh, differences were so small and this is that in reality the the Muslim nation was quite small and the people in it were, were limited in number in this time how was fiqh derived how did we derive fiqh from the Quran and the Sunnah from the sunnah that the Prophet ﷺ said, the sunnah that the Prophet ﷺ did, and the sunnah that he approved of. Disputes and questions were brought before the Prophet Sallallahu He answered the questions and he settled the disputes. In terms of fiqh, where did fiqh flourish more? Makkah or Medina? In Medina. And that is because in Makkah, it was primarily the time of تَصْحِيهُ الْإِعْتِقَادِ Correcting people's beliefs And then it went into a stage where Along with the beliefs There was also the aspects of Fiqh And uh, Rulings and so on Did the Prophet Sallallahu Teach fiqh or Rasul al-fiqh No doubt he did But he didn't teach it In a separate lesson He didn't come and say Ashabi my dear companions today I'm going to teach you usul fiqh rather the prophet ﷺ taught us usul and qawaid for example he taught us the qaida la darara wa la dirar there should be neither harm nor should harm be reciprocated but there were no dedicated fiqh lessons or dedicated usul or qawaid rather the prophet ﷺ taught according to the revelation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him and from these statements of the prophet later on the scholars extracted principles that, Darra yuzal. A'la adnaha wa adnahuma. Anyway, you get rid of the big evil by taking the smaller one these, kind of, these things came from what the prophet said and this was the best of all of the times in which fiqh was taught and everybody agrees, nobody disagrees That the best time to study fiqh Was from the Prophet Sallallahu And that is no, there is no disagreement on that From anybody That the best time that you could have ever studied fiqh Was from the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu But there is a benefit I want to take from this That the goal in fiqh Is not jam'u al But the goal in fiqh Is ma'rifatul rajih wal'amali bihi وَالْعَمَلُ bihi. That's the goal. So the goal in fiqh, by the delil of the sahaba, the goal in fiqh is not to gather everyone's different opinion. I know the opinion of this imam and this imam and this sheikh and this student, and I know all of the different... That's not the goal. The goal is to know what is correct, and the goal is to act upon it. And we're going to come back to that point when we talk about the regular person. Because our regular people, the and nas. They're not studying the books of the madhab, typically. Maybe, maybe you teach matan abhi in the masjid. You teach akhsar uh, al-mukhtasarat, or you teach something, a matan. But it's not common, right? Generally in the masjid, the teacher just teaches people what to do, right? He teaches this how you pray. Everyone, we're gonna learn how to make wudu. He doesn't you know, quote the, the books and teach the books like that. He just teaches the people. In this is the teacher wrong. When our Shaykh, for example, stands in the masjid and says, My brothers, I'm going to show you how to make wudu. And he shows how to make wudu. Is he wrong because he didn't open Matan Abi Shuja and start, or Safina Najah and start reading from it? No, he's not wrong. Because the goal here is Ma'rifatun Rajih. In the Hanafi Madhab that you will see the emphasis upon the Madhab among the regular people. I don't mean that it's not common in the others, but it's, it's, you see a lot of like, you know, emphasis on really learning the madhab, you know, and trying to take the regular person at least into the basics of fiqh from the madhab. And it's true in other places as well. Certain Shafi'i places, countries where they really try to like, but generally speaking, whatever it is, that regular person is not memorizing the matan, nor are they studying it in detail, They are just, the the teacher is a qualified person, and the teacher shows them how to pray, how to fast, what to do, and so on. And that's where they're taking their fiqh from, and there's nothing wrong with that. From the evidence that this is what the Sahaba did. And this is what happened in the time of the Khulafa Ar-Rashideen, and all the way up until maybe 250 years after the Hijrah, that's what people did. So there's nothing at all wrong with a teacher teaching people according to that teacher's knowledge. Now here comes a question. Should that teacher stick to his madhab? In reality, that's the teacher's choice. The teacher is qualified. If the teacher feels that the best way is to take the people through the madhab, and if the teacher feels, and then make tarjih, make preferences and, and select opinions, or if the teacher feels that it's best for the teacher to gather their personal, you know, way of doing things. At the end of the day, that's why you have qualified teachers. There's no, there should not be any issue with this. This leads us to a question before we talk about the second stage, which is an intisabu al madhab. Someone says, I am Muhammad Tim al-Hanbali. Is it allowed? Here, we differentiate between two types of intisab. We differentiate between Mujarrad al intisad Just taking the name. I studied Hanbali books. My teacher was Hanbali teacher. And now I've taken that name as a, you know, as something to show that I had studied from that Madhab. And maybe when I write a book, people can understand my opinions in light of uh, the Madhab, you know. Like it's nice when you're reading the, you know, you, you take, pick up a book of hadith. Bulugh al-Mara, for example. Imam al hafiz ibn Hajar. Al Shafi'i, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. No problem. I and mean, it tells me, you know, that's why he left that hadith. It tells me that's the. That's the and that's okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But where does intisab go wrong? Where does it go wrong to say, for someone to say that I am whatever, maliki or whatever? The first is at ta'assob lil imam. Like extremism and partisanship when following the Imam. The second is, a shiqaq fi al Yep, back on the same stream. So we should be, inshallah, if you have a check of it, it should be on the exact same stream. So we didn't break anything, uh, guys. We didn't uh, add anything. You haven't missed anything. If you're on the live stream, you haven't missed anything at all. So we were talking about, when does intisab become haram? We said, ta'asub, Breaking people up in the masjid, insulting the other Madahib, taking away from their honor and their right, or seeking superiority over other people because of al madhhab al-fiqhi. This is something that is not praiseworthy. But if a person has intisab to a madhab and they are not blindly following their imam, as we quoted Imam al-Shafi'i's ijma' on the issue, they are not insulting other people, they're not breaking up among the Muslims, they're not seeking superiority and to look down on other people, then there is, nothing, there is no issue with this intisab. It doesn't hurt anybody. The question which might be perhaps more I don't know if we could say the question that is perhaps more important or the question that is perhaps more um, It's perhaps the question that needs to be asked is Does this intisab really benefit the regular Muslim? I mean, does it mean anything? Okay, he comes today and he says My name is, for example, my name is Abdullah al-Shafi'i I say Abdullah, mashallah." Please tell me where did you research or where did you reach in the books of the Shafi'i madhab. This is Shafi'i, I never took anything. I just, I just, I just want to be with the Shafi'i. فوصيتي للناس إن I, my, I took my, I took the advice of the scholars, and I just, I just want to be Shafi'i. I would say, and this is just my personal opinion, I would suggest to you that this intisab it really doesn't have any meaning to it in reality it doesn't actually mean any real thing to be honest with you like what does it mean like the, the person he doesn't have to asub, he's not extreme he's not insulting other people he's not seeking to look down on them he's just a regular guy i just come to the masjid and pray ya yeah, akhi he is going to go against his madhab 200 times in a week because he doesn't he hasn't studied it he doesn't know the madhab the limits of the madhab He's just, in reality, all he can do is to take the opinions of his teacher. And if his teacher is staunch on a method, he'll be staunch on the method. And if his teacher is a bit more relaxed, he'll be relaxed. But he's a regular guy. So there's nothing wrong with his intisab. It doesn't hurt you anything. But it also doesn't benefit the regular person in, in, a, in a real way. It's nothing wrong, right? But it doesn't really bring them something that actually has,